This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Who's um, an assistant professor of ophthalmology at UCSF, got her ophthalmology training here and at Boston Children's and the Massachusetts uh, Eye Hospital, and uh, we... I first heard you speak at the Advances in Pediatrics course and want to thank Dr. Andrea Sello for bringing you there so we could bring you here. So <laughs> welcome. my pleasure. Thank you. All right. I'm going to send, set up a backup timer on my phone also just in case I lose sight of the, the green button here. But it's absolutely my pleasure to be here this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me um, to speak to you about uh, vision impairments and uh, the appropriate way to, to do vision screening in patients with developmental disabilities, um, especially the pediatric patients with um, developmental disabilities. As I'm a pediatric ophthalmologist, um, I'll be focusing my talk mostly on that. Um, So just to begin, I have no disclosures to report just yet. (laughs) Um, As an overview today, I'm going to be speaking to you first about the importance of vision screening in general and the impact that it has. Um, Secondly, talking to you about the vision problems that we often see in children, especially those that have developmental disabilities. Then I'll speak to you about some conventional screening tests that we have readily available at our disposal just in our normal clinic that I'll show you how to do and hopefully you can implement in your own practices. And then lastly, I'll talk to you about some of the new technologies that we have for automated vision screening um, so that you might be able to, to sort of use these modalities as well. So to go through our learning objectives, number one, to understand the impact of vision screening in children with developmental disabilities. Number two, to learn two conventional methods of vision screening. Three, to learn the four different types of automated screenings. And finally, you know, every test is not without its pitfalls or its um, negative implications or its cons. And so I sort of want to go through the pros and cons of each of these different Modalities so that you can make your best informed decision about what would work for you and your practice. Okay, so to begin, why do we even need to perform vision screening? About one in four American school children, which is a very, very high statistic, actually have some form of vision disability or vision problem. And then this percentage is much higher, as you can imagine, in children with developmental disabilities. This is often due to the fact um, that the underlying etiology that explains their developmental delay or disability can also affect the visual system. So um, factors such as prenatal or perinatal insults or acquired injuries can also affect the um, neurosensory pathway that affects vision. Patients that are developmentally delayed and also are very, very young pediatric patients often don't realize that they have a visual impairment. Or if they do, they don't have a way to convey that message to their parents or to their doctors. And so it's important that we, as the practitioners, are the ones that actually are being proactive in screening these patients. And then finally, these patients, um, when they have many other medical comorbidities or a lot of other things going on, parents often over, or, or, are often overlooking the vision um, impairments or potential vision disabilities that they may also have just because there are so many other things that they're sort of dealing with and many other doctor's appointments. So it's really our prerogative as 
the off pediatric ophthalmologists and as primary care doctors to be the first line of defense for these patients when it comes to vision screening, and then appropriately refer to us as the more subspecialized care when it's needed. So vision, visual disabilities, as you might guess, um, has a lot of impact on people's lives. Firstly, it can impact someone's ability to learn, um, also their career opportunities down the line. Um, there's this, a couple of studies that sort of try to quantify the, the actual monetary or economic burden of unilateral vision loss, and I would probably argue that the values that are sort of mentioned in this one paper are, are underballing it a little bit. Um, so this one sort of paper had described unilateral vision loss by the age of 10 can result in upwards of $67,000 of cost over a lifetime and about a 10% decrease in quality of life. You know, that's, that's, I think, is like the underestimate of what we can sort of imagine. Because especially in patients that have other forms of developmental or neurologic disability, it can impact other aspects of their life. Vision is so important in the development of motor, um, motor advancement, social interaction, self-care. So if there isn't appropriate vision um, established, these patients often sort of fall short in these other... Um, these other aspects of their development. So the most common vision problems that we see in all children at large, and I'll sort of go through the specific um, issues that we see in patients with developmental delay, are number one, amblyopia. So this is the one major thing that a lot of our vision screening testing is looking for. I'll describe what amblyopia actually is in the subsequent slides, but basically it is a failure of the development of the neurosensory pathway um, that allows one to see, and it's due to problems that occur during early development that impair vision. So these risk factors that can impair vision include a refractive error, so needing glasses, so having a, um, a constant blur in vision can therefore decrease the visual input that the brain is receiving, and therefore the development of that eye doesn't um, occur normally. Secondly, um, strabismus, or misalignment of the eyes. When the eyes are not actually working together, there is what we call competitive inhibition, so one eye takes over um, as a dominant eye and the, leaving the other eye to become lazy or amblyopic. And then finally, something that blocks visual input from entering into the eye and then therefore being translated into the brain, um, such as a cataract or some sort of a pacification in the front of the eye, can um, result in amblyopia. Aside from amblyopia, though, there are several other factors that can result in visual impairment. So this is number one, you know, just needing glasses in general, run-of-the-mill refractive error. Um, number two, strabismus, or misalignment of the eyes, doesn't necessarily need to cause a decrease in vision in one eye or another, but it can cause a decrease in a visual um, sort of um, a vi in visual ability because it can limit depth perception. And then finally, any other structural abnormalities of the eye. So just to go through amblyopia a little bit more, it's defined in a reduction of best corrected visual acuity. So this means with appropriate glasses that cannot be attributed to any structural abnormality of the eye. So this is this neurosensory abnormality. Um, it's because the brain is not receiving a, the normal amount of stimuli that it should as the visual system is developing. It's actually quite common um, amongst the general population of children. It's, it's about two to three percent of the population. 
It is the most common referral to my practice as a pediatric ophthalmologist and most pediatric ophthalmology practices at large. Um, but this percentage, I would argue, is much higher in patients with developmental delay because these patients actually have a much higher incidence of the, those three risk factors that can result in amblyopia, needing glasses, having strabismus, or having some sort of structural abnormality of the eye. It's important that we screen for amblyopia because um, if the incidence of amblyopia can actually increase by about 2.5, 2.6-fold by age 8 if screening is not done by age 2. So that's a substantial amount of burden that we can be decreasing by doing early screening of patients. Um, and why do we want to screen for amblyopia early? It's because, like I mentioned before, it's caused by risk factors that happen during early development. So that's before the age of 7. If those risk, so if someone develops a need for glasses or strabismus after that age, amblyopia may not develop, um, which is which is good because then it means that there might not be a long-term impact on vision. However, it still might result in a visual impairment. So amblyopia also is reversible when it's treated within this sensitive period, so between birth and seven years of age. So while 90% can be treated by age three, this goes down to. It was virtually 0% if a patient presents to us at age 10 with a diagnosis of amblyopia. So when we think about patients with developmental disability, I'm sorry for the small font on this slide, but I wanted to include this particular chart because I thought it was a very nice summary of the, the types of develop, uh, vision impairment that we see in patients with various forms of developmental disability um, compared to the general pediatric population. And so sort of going through several forms of developmental disability, such as intellectual disability, cerebral palsy, preterm birth, um, Down syndrome, they, all of these different forms actually have a higher rate of, vis of uh, just vision impairment in general, so vision under 2200, significantly higher than the general population, which is about 0.06%. Um, refractive errors at large, this is about over 50% of this patient population actually need glasses. Um, similarly, over 50% of this patient population often have misalignment of their eyes. So that's a significant difference compared to about the 6 to 7% that we see in a general pediatric population. So why, this is why vision screening might be even more important when we're talking about children who have developmental disabilities. So our current recommendations for vision screening are to perform vision screening on all patients between the age of 3 to 5 to detect the presence of amblyopia or its risk factors. And this is something that was agreed upon by many, many large organizations, such as the U.S. Preventative Task Force, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and then my organization, the American Academy of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. Um, and then, in addition to that, the, the American Academy of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus actually recommends that patients that have a neurodevelopmental disability actually be referred to an eye care provider, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, for a comprehensive eye exam regardless of what the vision screening testing shows. Um, this is because oftentimes these patients may not sort of show positive test, uh, the, may not have a positive test on the vision screening, or even if they do, they might qualify for um, a general ophthalmology exam to enable them to be enrolled in early intervention services. But this isn't what actually happens. Um, unfortunately, the requirements of preventative eye care vary really broadly um, throughout the country. Only 40 out of our 50 states require any vision screening for 
any children, and only 16 require vision screening for preschool age screen, uh, children. This is the age that it's important to do before amblyopia becomes irreversible. That's a minority. And then in 2011, only 40% of children below the age of five actually underwent some form of vision screening. While this is up from the 21% in the 80s, still, we still have quite a way to go. Um, and then only one in five children with some form of uh, developmental disability that should qualify for early intervention programs are actually enrolled in these before the age of three. So obviously there is a good need for um, a standardized protocol and you know, more widespread and efficient approach for vision screening. So in order to sort of answer what that might be, sort of have to ask, what is vision screening actually looking for? So number one, we want to look for amblyopia, which is sort of in the center of this Venn diagram, and then also the risk factors that can contribute to amblyopia, but also can result in vision loss in its own right. So this is the need for glasses or refractive error, having any structural abnormality of the eye, or having a misalignment of the eye. Our conventional screening tests that we have and are very easy to do and are readily available and cheap because we have this equipment already in our clinics are vision testing with optotype acuity um, and then something that's called a red reflex test with a, uh, with a direct ophthalmoscope. That's the Bruckner red reflex test. And these can look for a great, you know, all three of these different um, uh, components that can result in amblyopia. So before we talk about visual acuity measurements, we have to know that the normal visual acuity does vary by age. We don't actually expect our children to develop 20-20 vision until they're at least five years old. Um, part of this has to do with the actual development of their visual pathway, but also their ability to perform with the tests. So our cutoffs for screening is usually around the age of 2040 by age three to four, and 2030 by age five. And this is with our standard optotype recognition testing. In children that have disability, though, oftentimes this, that form of testing is not possible, especially if they're not able to, to name or if they're nonverbal. Um, so if a patient is able to have some level of cognitive skills, such as the ability to match and recognize shapes, one test that we often do is, some, is called LEIA matching. You show a single optotype on the screen that has a varying size, so that sort of tells you their acuity. And then they have a sheet in front of them with the same shapes of uh, the four. There's four different shapes in the test, and they point to which one it, they see on the screen. This actually works very, very well in some of our patients who are non-uncooperative, even if they don't have a developmental disability, if they're just shy. Um, but we often found this to be very, very helpful in our patients that are nonverbal with for severe autism or cerebral palsy or any other um, developmental disability. And then if that isn't even possible, um, if a patient isn't able to have that ability to match, to look on the screen, to point, we also have um, resolution-based visual acuity tests. This is called the teller card acuity test. Um, basically with this test, we show a board of stripes on one side and a plain um, and a plain sort of screen on the other side, and we look to see if there's a saccade towards the shape, towards the striped pattern. That would sort of indicate that there is acuity of that level. And then the gradient of that, those stripes actually can decrease, become finer and finer, and then you're able to determine whether someone is able to resolve the difference between the striped pattern versus a blank side, and that sort of gives you a sense of acuity. So for this test, there's no talking that's needed. There's no pointing that's needed. So virtually all of our patients, so long as they're able to fixate or look at something, they're able to perform this test, and we're actually able to get an objective acuity.
So any form of optotype visual acuity is, is a good form of testing. And sort of just looking at the value of doing this testing, there's been a couple of different validation studies that have shown that the positive predictive value for doing any form of optotype visual acuity testing is 60% when it comes to experienced users, those who are, know how to do a visual acuity test. But when it comes to sort of lay screeners, so if it was you know, to be done in a drugstore or sometimes in daycares, the positive predictive value falls substantially to about 27%. So that's something to sort of keep in our, in our back pop pocket when we think about the utility of this form of testing. So the second form of con conventional testing is called the Bruckner Red Reflex Test. This is a test where a direct ophthalmoscope is used to shine a light into both of the patient's eyes from a distance of about two to three feet away. So you don't actually have to approach the patient very close, which is very, very helpful in a lot of our patients that have sensory, um, uh, sensory issues or you know, just feel uncomfortable with bright lights by them or won't let you occlude one eye or another because this is a binocular test. Um, and basically, by shining this light in the patient's both, in both eyes, you're able to tell two things. Number one, is there a visual access or pacification? So is there a structural abnormality of the eye? You can tell that by seeing if there's an abnormal red reflex. And then secondly, you can actually compare the quality of the red reflex between the two eyes and determine if one eye is the fixating eye versus the amblyopic eye. So here, in this picture, this patient is looking straight at you with the direct ophthalmoscope, and you can see here that one of the eyes has a brighter crescent than the other eye, which is dimmer. It's actually that dimmer eye that's the one that's fixating on you, and it's the brighter eye that has some sort of abnormality. You don't necessarily need to know what that is, but you know at this point that you can refer to an ophthalmologist or an optometrist to have a comprehensive eye exam because almost assuredly this patient has either a refractive error or a strabismus or some form of amblyopia. Um, with an experienced user, which most practitioners would be very quite easily, this has a very high positive predictive value of about 89%. So I think this is an underutilized test. Um, but these conventional approaches do have substantial barriers. As we saw from the visual acuity testing, um, the positive predictive value is quite dependent on the experience of the, the person who's taking the measurements. Um, you know, part of this is because these tests do work in better and more cooperative children, oftentimes when they're older. We do tend to have difficulty, even with a Bruckner red reflex sometimes, on children who are um, developmentally delayed or who are younger and are just not cooperative in general. Um, Sometimes the visual acuity test does need to be done monocularly. You need to test one eye and then the other, which is very time-consuming. And so for that reason, people find this to be inefficient and per per um, perhaps more um, cost-inefficient for the, the physicians. So because of that, there's been a big push for automated vision screeners. The, and there's two different types that I want to talk about. Number one is the photorefractors, which you, many of you might have already seen. And then so a new technology that I sort of want to touch upon just a bit. Um, so our photorefractors, these, there's three different types that I'll go through, but these are designed to be operated by lay users. So librarians um, and you know someone who's in a daycare, anyone can use this test because it's quick. It can be done at a distance. It um, doesn't have as much user variability, and it has sort of checks in place so that you get an accurate result. Um, it's a binocular test. You don't need to cover one eye or another. It takes about five seconds to do, and it can detect amblyopia risk factor, so normally a refractive error, so it can sort of do a gross measurement of what a glasses prescription would be, and then also if there's a strabismus or a misalignment of the eye. 
So before I did my talk um, last year at the advances in, in, in pediatrics, I actually had all of these vision screeners sent to my office so I can try them out and sort of get my own feeling because I'm you know, going to be validating them anyway in my clinic with a comprehensive eye exam just to see you know, how accurate they were, what our experience was, and what we felt our patients felt about it. So the first one we tested was a spot vision screener by Welsh Allen. It's an infrared screener. Um, and it's used at a distance uh, away from the patient. It can measure a refractive error and strabismus. And then it gives you an instant interpretation with pass or fail um, for whether to refer to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist or not. And then this is based off of standard guidelines that were set forth by the American Academy of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. Um, and this is our technician sort of holding this device, testing it on me, and it sort of played these flashing lights. It sort of moved in an undulating, slow way with, like, these bird chirping sounds. It was quite soothing. Our patients actually said that they liked it very much, and they were sort of enthralled by it. So we thought it had a, you know, positive experience in that, in that regard. Um, and then the second one that we looked at was the plus optic screener. Similar, it's very similar to the spot vision screener, as well as um, an infrared screener that can be used at a distance, can measure refractive error and strabismus. Um, the one advantage to this one is that you can modify your referral criteria. Here in the U.S., we most always will be using the same criteria, but this would be sort of uh, this would allow it to be more applicable in different countries because there are different guidelines for when to refer to an ophthalmologist or not. Um, likewise, it gives you a pass or fail result. The one, also, the one difference that we sort of felt in experience is here um, there was sort of this clown shape with a strobe light and um, a louder, almost like a laughing, cackling noise, which while it drew attention, off, a lot of our patients actually were quite scared of it. Um, and I was a little scared of it as well. Um, but specifically, you know, for this population, for our artistic population or those with sensory issues, it was, it was a quite difficult test for them to tolerate, at least in our experience. Um, and then finally, the third test that we looked at was the Go Check Kids. This is a cell phone-based vision screener. Um, it works a little bit differently than the other two vision screeners in that it um, takes a photograph of the reflex that's, that's emitted out of the two patients' eyes with the fixation. Um, and then based off of that photograph, they're able to give an estimate of refractive error um, um, from the crescent of the light that's seen from that photograph. Um, it's not able to tell strabismus like the other ones, but it's able to at least give you a measurement of refractive error and then similarly give you a pass or fail and when to refer to a pediatric ophthalmologist. Um, because it's on your phone, it's a lot easier to use. You just sort of subscribe to a monthly subscription. I think our UCSF um, pediatricians are actually off, uh, using this device. Um, the one thing, though, is that it requires perfect fixation. It doesn't really give you that same sort of feedback that the other two do in terms of ensuring that you have that perfect fixation, because otherwise you'll have a very, very high false positive rate. Um, and then the one advantage that we felt was that because it's cell phones, and unfortunately in this day and age with millennial parents, everyone's taking photos and selfies. Our kids are very used to having photos taken of them with the phone, so they're ready to cheese and be ready to, to look at this photo screener to have the test to be done. Um, so I do want to go through, like I mentioned, sort of some of the pros and cons of these tests. I sort of mentioned, you know, the advantages of automated vision screening in general and that it allows anyone to be able to use very, very quickly um, and be done in a you know, relatively accurate way. There are 
you know, sort of downsides to these vision screening devices as well. And a lot of them has to do with their positive and, pre- and negative predictive values. So I want to go through, well, first of all, just as a review, positive predictive value is that, you know, the percent of the, of the time that a positive value is actually a true positive value that we see when we, as ophthalmologists, when we are doing a confirmatory eye exam. So that's important to us, right? It, we want a high positive predictive value because we don't want to have too many referrals that then are, end up being negative. However, as a screener, the negative predictive value is more important to you because you want to ensure that a negative test is truly negative and it's not missing an actual positive test. So as a screener, the negative predictive value, having a high value for that is important to you. So ideally, we would have a high value for both. Oftentimes, we can't get that. Um, So... One of the things that I looked for specifically when I was looking for validation testing was the use of these devices in the general population, not in an ophthalmologist's office, which is where a lot of these validation tests were actually done. Because as ophthalmologists and as ophthalmic technicians, our staff are very, very trained with all of these different devices, so we're going to always get a higher value for the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value. But that's not reflective of what the general use of this device would be. So I specifically sought out community-based approach or usages of these devices. So the first one I looked at was the spot vision screener. This was a study that was done in the community in over 7,000 children of various ages, um, and it was uh, the screener was used by lay personnel. The positive predictive value for any amblyogenic risk factor was 65%. It's okay. They didn't check the negative predictive value because um, only the patients that had the positive value were then referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist to have a confirmatory eye exam, so we don't know if the negative values were truly negative or not. And then, specifically for patients with developmental delay, I found this study that, again, was used on, in the lay, by lay screeners in patients that had all forms of intellectual or neurologic or developmental disabilities. Um, they had 100 st- children that were included in this study, again, of various age ranges. Um, and here they mentioned both the positive and the negative predictive values because all of these patients were screened by a pediatric ophthalmologist or optometrist, as they should have been since they do have these disabilities. They found, though, that the spot vision screener had a slightly lower positive predictive value in this population of about 58%, but the negative predictive value was very, very high, of about 86%. So I think you can feel assured that a negative test, even in a developmentally delayed population, is actually truly negative. And then sort of similarly, when I'm looking at the plus optics screener, this is a study um, in all children. Um, but, uh, this study included over 1,000 children of various ages using the spot vision screener by lay operators. The positive predictive va- uh, value of this screening test was much higher than the Welsh-Allen test at 81%. But again, this study didn't calculate the negative predictive value for the same reason as the previous study. Um, and then I found this one for the use of the, posit- of the plus optic screener in patients with intellectual disability, um, you know, which includes at least a subset of patients that have some form of developmental disability. And they found here that, again, when used by non-medical personnel, the study had a lower, or this um, screening test had a lower positive predictive value in this population, though the negative predictive value was quite high. So I think we can feel assured that with either one of these automated vision screeners, a negative predictive value is truly negative, but you know, even still for other social reasons or coordination reasons, these patients m- will most likely still need a, a, an actual eye exam. 
And then looking at the Go Check Kids device, this is unfortunately a newer technology, so they don't have a lot of validation studies. So they don't have one in the community, and they don't have one in, in um, the developmentally disabled population. However, in this particular study, looking at the Go Check Kids screening device, this was used in an eye center. So this was used by eye personnel. Um, the positive predictive value was actually quite low at 57%. And then preliminary data from our UCSF, sort of we're looking back um, at our population here is even lower, about 50%, and it can get even lower than that if it's used in patients that are under 12 months of age. The negative predictive value, however, is, is high. It's 83%. So all of these different forms of vision screeners are looking for different risk factors for amblyopia. They're looking for need for glasses or subtle strabismus, but they're not actually looking for amblyopia itself. So the question is, is there some form of technology that can actually just look for that directly without sort of beating around the bush and give us a more accurate um, test result? So yes, there is this new technology that's just been created. It's not out in the market yet, but it will be soon. Um, this is um, called the Blink by Rebion. It's a device that uses something that's called neural performance scanning, which basically means it uses a specific type of laser that rather than taking a photo of the reflex that's generated by the eye, it actually sends a laser to the fovea, which is the, the back part of the eye, the central part of vision. Um, and then based off of the, the birefringence that's, gotten, that's received back from the, the um, laser reflection, between the two eyes, they can tell if there's a subtle misalignment or a subtle discrepancy and thereby tell if there's actually truly amblyopia or even a strabismus of about one degree, which is something that even us as eye professionals can't do on our general eye exam. Um, when This is, again, a very new technology, so there's only one validation study, and again, this one was used in an eye care center. Here they found that when, when, when this particular technology was used um, in this population of 300 patients, it had a very, very high sensitivity, specificity, and a very high positive and negative predictive value. So this could very well be the future of vision screening in our patient populations. So I sort of put this chart together just in our last minute or so of going through the different forms of vision, the vision screening modalities that we've talked about, um, sort of thinking about the, pot, the pros and cons of each of them. You know, the biggest thing that we want to look at is, is, is the negative predictive value high and is the positive predictive value high? Unfortunately, when we look at our patients with developmental disabilities, that positive predictive value is, is a little bit lower than the general pediatric population. But so long as the negative predictive value is high, I would argue that it's a good screening test to be used and can be trusted. When it comes to the cost, though, which is the big question, that's where the difference really lies. Um, when you're thinking about vision testing or the Bruckner Red Reflex, these are things that you can do in your clinic with equipment that you already most likely have, so it's about a cost of zero. Um, for the automated vision screeners, these roughly cost about $7,000 one time each. The Go Check Kids, which is the phone screener, costs about $60 a month. And then this new technology, we don't know. We'll see how much it actually ends up costing, hopefully not too much. So just in conclusion, early vision screening is needed for all pediatric patients, especially those with developmental disabilities. Conventional methods, such as visual acuity testing and Bruckner reflex, are still very, very viable options in this population and stood, should, still be should still be trusted. However, in order to make our screening more efficient for the general population from a public health standpoint, automated vision testing can improve our efficiency. And then finally, newer technology can provide better results potentially. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.